Welcome to Purpose Inc., the podcast where we discuss corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. I'm your host, Michael Young. Corporate social responsibility and sustainability is a large question, and it's uh, it's a big part of what I talk about here on the podcast. And I think broadly, corporations are trying to become more sustainable and do better on a wide range of of environmental and social issues. And many or most are willing to give organizations uh, some leeway and the benefit of the doubt. Others want them held to account and to higher standards and regulated. And still others, uh, environmental activists, are openly and consistently criticizing organizations for what they're doing. And so a question would be, when that happens, how do you respond when environmental uh, critics attack your company? Uh, What do you do? How do you respond? How do you react? My guest today is Bob Langert, and Bob led McDonald's Corporation's CSR and sustainability efforts for more than 25 years, retiring in 2015. And over the course of his career, Bob dealt with any number of major environmental and sustainability issues uh, in, 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 in his career. And, and McDonald's, as you can imagine, has a huge global footprint, and they were pushed by activists on a number of issues, uh, everything from waste to animal welfare, obesity, Amazon deforestation, um, sustainable fishing, uh, even potatoes, right? McDonald's is the largest buyer of potatoes globally. Uh, for French fries. And so, and Bob dealt with all of these issues over his career. And and he's written a book uh, called The Battle to Do Good, Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. And it is a, it is a very fine business book. And I mean that uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm not a huge fan of business books. But what Bob has done is written a book that is and and you can read it at many levels but it is a it is a thoroughgoing study and analysis of what happened at McDonald's over a 25 year period dealing with um um you know internal stakeholders and external stakeholders and critics on that list of very large environmental and sustainability topics. And so you could read it as a memoir, um, but I think it's it's better to read it as a, as a how-to manual on what to do and how to respond. Uh, and you can read it at many levels from a, uh, from a crisis communication standpoint, from an investor relations standpoint, um, from a PR uh, and a brand, uh, survivability standpoint, um, but what animates um, the whole the whole book is is really the approach that that Bob Langer took throughout his career at McDonald's when the company was attacked by um, many many organizations, EDF, PETA. Um, World Wildlife Federation, on and on and on. Every organization that has anything to say about environmentalism or sustainability came at, at, at 
McDonald's. And I think the the approach that Bob took there was to not only respond, but to invite those critics in and to build partnerships and, and build productive partnerships that allowed McDonald's, but also uh, the, the environmental group to really meet and, and work together on solutions. And so it's, it's, it is a very fine book. It's, it's highly readable. It's very interesting. It, you get the feeling of being a fly on the wall inside of um, McDonald's Corporation as a lot of these issues were being addressed. Uh, Bob was a, uh, you know, must have been a phenomenal note taker because you really get the sense of being there. And so it's, it's, it's quite an enjoyable book. I'll link it uh, in the show notes and I, I, I commend it to you um, to read. So again, Bob Langert, uh, incredible journey at McDonald's across a long, long history. And we get into a lot of this uh, in today's discussion. So without further ado, my conversation with Bob Langert. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you. All right. So I've read your book, and um, it, it's it's really interesting on on many levels. And and we're going to get into the memoir, the whole the whole thing. And I I think what's interesting for me, at least, is you could read this book at a number of different levels. You could read it as a memoir. You can read it as a book about brand survival, about crisis communications, about PR, about IR. It's fascinating about supply chain, about partnerships. It's fascinating on many, many levels. So I really do want to commend you. And and it's an exciting, it's an exciting read, actually, which you know you don't often say about business books, but Michael, um, I want to and say- I will say. I'm delighted to hear that because when I started writing a book, people would ask me what I was trying to achieve. I was trying to actually make sustainability and the whole journey be a page turner. I wanted it to be yeah. a page turner. <laughs> so yeah. if you felt that well, at all, that is wonderful. You succeeded because, um, again, I had no expectations going in, but you exceeded my expectations massively because I think, one thing, you're a very good note taker. And I really felt like I was there in a lot of these situations, like that you really popped them off the page. So uh, exciting, exciting stuff. All right. But I, I do want to get into the book and in particular, um, you know, the, 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 the various and, and many major, major battles we fought. And I'll just... For the listeners who haven't read the book, and I will link the book in the show notes, um, you really confronted and managed a number of major social, environmental, and sustainability issues at McDonald's over 30 years that were really on a global scale. And that's the other point about this book that is absolutely massively global. And so, you know, we can take this in any, you know, in, in chunks, but, you know, let's, the, the issues, the battles were around uh, waste, animal welfare, obesity, Amazon deforestation, 
fishing, sustainable fishing, a sustainable supply chain. And then I think what animates all of these were how you tied how you tie this all together in terms of your response, and in particular, your response to McDonald's critics, uh, which again, I found incredibly fascinating and enlivening to read your your approach. So I'm going to stop talking and ha- get get after it any way you want, Bob. Well, where do we begin? I, I think you, <laughs> you, you, well, you mentioned the, the theme of uh, we, we were the center of so many uh, issues that were very global and very societal. And uh, I learned early on with the waste issue, that was the first one I worked on for the company, is that, you know, you got to work with the critics. You got to work with some sort of external party that gives you credibility. And uh, hopefully they're a, a thoughtful NGO or or some sort of outside group that's not trying to destroy you. And, you know, we, and we got lucky with the Environmental Defense Fund because they, you know, they, they sent a letter to our CEO say, hey, can we work with you? And we didn't even know EDF at the time. This was 1989 or so. And uh, so we just said, hey, we're in trouble. We don't know what we're doing. I mean, I was hired to head this stuff up, and you know, none of us knew anything about environmentally sound packaging, including me. So I was on a big learning curve. I needed expertise. I needed people that knew their stuff about waste. We had nobody in McDonald's who knew anything about it. And besides all that, we needed credibility because you know, no matter what we did, we needed some sort of credibility partner to say that, hey, McDonald's is actually doing a good job. And uh, you know, we struck gold with uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, I and mean, I still love them today. Uh, they're, they're such a smart organization, great people. They helped us reduce waste. We ended up you know, signing a deal with them, creating 42 ways to reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, we, we thought they were kind of the enemy because we didn't really know them. We, we, we invited them into our restaurants and ends up that they're nice people. I like them. Our people like them. They became good friends. I still talk to them today. And uh, just, just a wonderful result that made the company very confident about the future issues that we would, we would address. Because that, that became our formula uh, that, hey, animal welfare. My boss said, figure out an animal welfare strategy in the uh, mid-90s or so. And again, you know, we knew nothing about animal welfare. We make hamburgers, french fries. You know, we serve the customers out in the retail space. You know, we didn't know all these supply chain issues. So again, Somehow, through working with animal rights organizations, this is one of my favorites, because uh, I would talk to Peter Singer, who wrote Animal Liberation. And look up Peter Singer. He's pretty controversial. His book is considered to be the the, the modern treatise starting the animal welfare movement. And it was a tough read for me, because I, I don't really agree with it all. But I was trying to understand Peter Singer and how that that type of uh, that, that organization and people that believe in animal rights, where do they come from? Because, I mean, obviously, I work for McDonald's and I'm not on the same belief system. But in order to have a conversation, I want to be on the same page. I, you know, I met with him. I had breakfast with him and met him other times. And again, really like Peter Singer. He's a very smart guy. And he was the one that told, that told me to work with Dr. Temple Grandin, who is a renowned animal scientist, who I didn't know at the time. I should have known. So I ended up seeing her, and that was a marriage made in heaven because she was a, a rock star 
in the animal welfare industry. She's a very special leader. She's uh, autistic, uh, but she really knows her animal, how to, how, to, how to work with animals. So we kind of gave her the keys to our supply chain for all the meat companies. And after several years, we implemented her programs with our suppliers and had great success uh, again, you know, implementing programs to uh, improve animal welfare systems. So uh, I'm glad you caught that theme. We can go where you want, but I would say that's a very common element for uh, a solution versus what I see today. I still see, even though, there, you know, hey, back when we worked with the Environmental Defense Fund, that was not done at that time. Back in 1990, when we announced this whole thing, it was a brand new thing. People weren't, big companies working, weren't working with uh, NGOs. Now they're, I would say, quite common. Uh, but the reality is, from what I see, is still when companies are attacked by outside groups and outside issues, they, they tend to get very defensive. Uh, they tend to uh, dig a hole. They either resist, deny, fight, uh, or, or do something like that. And, uh, and I always wonder why they don't work more with the critics. Critics don't necessarily mean they're bad guys. <laughs> you know, most critics actually want you to succeed in what you're doing. And that's what we learned. Nine times out of 10, I'm not saying every group out there is out for your, the welfare of your organization, but most are. And if you can find a common ground, you can hit home runs left and right. And I feel that's something we, we did pretty well in our history. And Bob, I want to I want to really dig into that point about the corporate response. And I think one of the things I noted in 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 the in the book is is the fact that in many cases you were taking directly inbound uh, criticism, and then the organization had to react and had to respond. And you talk about the views of legal and marketing and uh, and PR and the executive suite. And it, it, it did seem as if a big part of your job was both formal and informal diplomacy internally. How, how did you get Microsoft and, and how did Microsoft evolve? Uh, Microsoft, excuse me, McDonald's. <laughs> Sorry, BM. Uh, how did McDonald's evolve in its in the way it thinks about and thought about these issues? I mean, clearly the, the these are very high profile um, organizations. You mentioned EDF, it's World Wildlife Fund, it's PETA, um, it's Greenpeace. Um, how did how did you get internal stakeholders to focus on? these issues the way that you did well we tried to uh tried to work with uh what the truth was uh, get beyond the rhetoric so for example uh PETA attacked us on various fronts and PETA people for the ethical treatment of animals i have to say they had some very uh ugly uh but hey maybe very effective methods of getting public attention you know showing up throwing blood on the streets you know, which was ketchup or interrupting our speeches that we would make and running to the stage and, you know, crying out bloody murder in front of everybody. I mean, they had some shock tactics. So, of course, do you think any of us like that? No, we don't like that. I didn't like it. But when you actually looked at the core of what they were advocating for, 
uh, more room for laying hens, uh, getting rid of gestation stalls for hogs. I know these are technical issues for the listeners, but you know what we tried to do was uh, we, we found that those issues had uh, they had legs, they had some legitimacy. So we didn't like the carrier necessarily. We didn't like some of these tactics, but then I would tell our team within McDonald's, let's put that to the side for a second. Let's look at the actual issue. And then let's work with an organization that is very scientific and thoughtful, i.e. Dr. Temple Grandin came in and we formed an animal welfare council of many, many experts to help create strategies for animal welfare. So we would take an issue that could be emotional, we're getting attacked, instead of playing defense on it, well, you're automatically defensive a little bit because you're not doing this proactively, but you, you decide to react. So the way to be proactive and reacting <laughs> is setting up your own way of approaching it. And you're not going to work with PETA. You're going to work with animal welfare experts. So we got attacked on obesity, hey, a legitimate issue for society. I mean, I think at first we, you know, we thought of McDonald's, you know, why are we being attacked on it? We're, we're good people. I eat at McDonald's all the time. You know, you can, you can be healthy and eat at McDonald's. And yeah, we serve food that is on the spectrum of, could be uh, could be indulgent food to a certain extent, but the uh, so we were attacked left and right. You know, movies may have supersized me movie. If you remember that movie, I mean, that hit to the core of what we did. And uh, but again, what we tried to do is say, well, you know what, we play a role in this. This that the actual issue is important. Let's figure out what we can do. And we set up a uh, council uh, of nutritionists, about twelve of them that uh, I recruited around the world that advised our company, that advised our leaders. I still remember those great nutrition leaders from around the world talking to our CEOs and all of our senior executives. It was fascinating. And they had a great impact and on, on, on showing us you know, kind of what to do. So, for example, on that one, these nutritionists in general, they said, you know what? Your influence at McDonald's is with kids. And it's hard to change adult habits for eating. But why don't you really focus your nutrition efforts with kids? And if you go to McDonald's today, you know that the Happy Meal today is a far cry from the Happy Meal of 10 and 15 years ago. It's a downsized French fries. It's an automatic fruit or fruit or vegetable type serving. We don't put uh, the, uh, the, the, the 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 drinks uh, on the. Uh, it's not a uh, it's not a default setting. They have they have either milk or water for their drink. So it's a spectacular change. It's one that you know, I thought it was one of our better changes, again, due to looking at this thing more scientifically. Now, probably the best example I can give is when Greenpeace attacked us in 2005 or 2006 on destroying the rainforest in the Amazon uh, based on growing too much soy and soy is being exported to Europe and it's used for chicken feed for like McNuggets. Well, Greenpeace showed up in Dozens of restaurants in UK dressed up as chickens. They chained themselves to the tables and chairs. And I woke up one morning to learn that they had this campaign. Well, again, my first reaction is, what the heck? I don't like what they're doing. They're coming in. They're attacking our restaurants. They're, they're, they're doing something sensational. But then I read the report called Eating Up the Amazon. I called Conservation International. I called my contact and my friend at the World Wildlife Fund. And I learned from my two good NGO partners that I already had partnerships with, that the report from Greenpeace was actually a good report. It was accurate. So we called Greenpeace within a day. 
and said, hey, we agree with you. I later learned that we we shocked them by agreeing with them, because how could you mount a campaign when the campaign company, us, agrees with them? But we said your solutions to solve it aren't, they're not uh, based on reality. I mean, we can't change the soy industry. We don't even know anything about it. We don't even know who our soy suppliers are. It's like four steps removed from what we buy. But, but we said if, if, you, if we partner together and we can get other companies and retail companies to sign on, if we can get suppliers like Cargill, who's one of, one of our strategic suppliers and one of the big traders in Brazil to be a thought partner on this, I bet you we can make things happen. We did all that, and within three months, a moratorium was announced by the soy industry by themselves to stop the practices, and it's been in place ever since, and it's been very effective. So it just goes to show you that when you uh, base things on science and thought and collaboration, if, if that's your starting point, why not have it be your starting point and see if it works? <laughs> it's worth a try. And, and I, we found that it you know works most times. Yeah, absolutely. And and Bob, maybe just a few minutes on on the role of your the role and response of the communications and the PR team in particular. And it it seemed like that organization went through a, a journey and an evolution along with you. Whereas the as you said, you know, the typical response is, you know, you get the lawyers, you get the you ramp up the PR team and you come out swinging. How did that evolve over well, time there's, there's at a McDonald's? Of, a lot of evolution on the communication front. Lots. Uh, where do I start? You know, I would say at, at first, back in the early days, you know, the the nineties and the first 10, 15 years, it was it was mainly like uh, denial or putting up a fight, and you know, we uh, we went on the attack, you know, quite often from a communication viewpoint. But then what we found is, you know, it just wasn't helpful. It just uh, it made people think less of us. Uh, and uh, then we started to uh, wise up. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with Fast Food Nation. Uh, that was a book about kind of the McDonald's uh, and how bad McDonald's supply chain is and all the abuses in it, supposedly. And uh, there was a movie coming out. So we, you know, we prepared for that one totally different. And we prepared for Super Size Me in a totally different manner. And, and in those our, the communication strategy was one of recognizing the issue at hand. So we, we got away from denying. We said, hey, uh, nut- nutrition, obesity is a, a key issue of our times. And we recognize that. And we have a role to play. And that would be our starting point. So rather than start with a, a, a punch or two, <laughs> we started out saying at the big level, you, you have a great point to make. And then we would... Uh, Usually we had partners that worked with us that we would work with third partners to let them speak about what we do. We found that over time, are people going to believe a Bob Langard or some other you know corporate suit? I use that in quotes, you know, about what we're doing. No, not necessarily. So hey, if you want to talk to some of our nutritionists that work with us, they have free reign. They they can say what they want to say. If you want to talk to Dr. Grant and call them. If you want to call Greenpeace, call them. If you want to talk about sustainable beef call the people we know at the, the World Wildlife Fund. That was a big part of our strategy, you know, as well. But, you know, I would say in general, Michael, even to the day that I retired in 2015, I was never really happy with our communication uh, strategy overall. 
probably the biggest complaint that I got within McDonald's, you know, all the all the people that work for McDonald's, and there's a lot of them, there's about 1.8 million people work for McDonald's globally. The number one complaint that I heard from our own people was, why don't we share our story of what we do more with the public? Why are we just sitting ducks, taking all these missiles, and in general, we're not out there, you know, sharing our story in a more proactive way and putting my money behind it. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we had a website and we, we did reports, you know, so we did some basic, you know, nuts and bolts stuff, but uh, it was the basics. And, uh, and in general, why didn't we do more? I still think it's because why do more? You can get in trouble. It's a Pandora's box. Uh, the lawyers definitely, you know, had to review everything. And in general, with the lawyers, everything became generic and non-meaning. I mean, I, they would come up with things that I would say in press releases. I go, I would never say this. I'm not going to put out something that I'm not going to say. Uh, so I would, you know, fight quite often about making our communication much more honest and authentic. Because, you know, I still think that's a problem today. Companies need to communicate in a different style when it comes to sustainability. It's not about how great you are and, and trumping all the good things you do in a way that you would trump your latest product launching, your latest sandwich that you introduce. It's it's way more humbling, open, uh, sharing, sharing things that don't go right. You're not going to get anybody to believe you on a sustainability journey unless you say the things that you struggle with. Where is it that you fail? Where is it that you're not making progress? And be honest about it. Because then when you say, but here's our progress on animal welfare, here's what we're doing on Happy Meals, here's what we're doing on uh, deforestation and, and, uh, and uh, sustainable fish, then people are going to believe you. Because, you know, they know, customers know the world's not perfect. They expect companies to try hard, to, 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 to work in collaboration, to find solutions, and to make incremental progress. And that's what I always pitched when I was at McDonald's, and we did it to a certain extent, but never to the level that I thought we should or could have. And uh, I think since, you know, since I still follow McDonald's, I think they do a better job of it today, but I still think generally within the corporate world, and talking to my peers that are leaders, it's it's one that many people in the sustainability field wish there was more creativity in and more innovation, because many of us believe, including me, that there we're we're putting a lot of money on the table to be gotten. I mean, we all know we've done enough customer research at McDonald's. Other companies have done similar research. Know that customers really do care about this area. They really do. It's hard to find customers that don't care. So. Uh, are they willing to spend more money? You know, maybe not. But it's a deep, deep concern, and they're willing to reward and punish companies on it. And I, I just think, from a marketing and communications, and it's still we're still at the very low end of companies figuring it out and getting rewarded for it. Yeah, and you know, I think well, just hearing that uh, description, Bob. You know, I think one, you know, the 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 issue of of how vast McDonald's operation is globally, and and you mentioned you know we didn't even get into potatoes or you know any number you mentioned hogs and chicken 
uh, cages and, um, you know, there are so many issues. You talk about the AIM model in the book and another um, kind of a, 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 a piece of or a framework or a methodology um, that I'd commend to our listeners on 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 how to think about issues proactively. Um, but you also mentioned in the book that there were some, and I think it was um, uh, the deforestation issue in particular that wasn't on anyone's radar. So how did you come to adopt that? And, and how did you use the AIM model? Um, and, and, and sort of what were the, the strengths and the weaknesses of that, uh, that approach during your time? Well, you're right about the A model, and that stands for anticipatory issues management or some way to uh, look at emerging issues. And uh, we really set it in motion early on in my lifespan there at McDonald's because, again, we're getting taxed left and right. And we said, well, rather than play defense, let's get an AIM team together. So we, we got people from all over the world to meet on the phone mostly uh, once a month, and we'd say, hey, what's our list of issues? And 30, 40, 50 issues, which ones are the most important? We'd go through all of that. Which is the most material to McDonald's? Who can, what, where can we make an impact? That's all those types of questions. And, and imagine an aim chart with that. The, the, the theory of it is that if you, for, for an issue to percolate and to penetrate into society, it goes through an evolution of emergence. And at the emergence state, that's where you want to work on it. If you let it fester, and don't address anything, it becomes more mainstream into society. And by, by the time an issue is more mainstream, that means it's becoming political. That means it's in the media. That means lawyers are getting involved. That means you have a tax. And that means that companies are now maybe reacting in a way to solve something overnight that might not be a good solution, that might cost them more money. So the theory of AIM is that if you catch it early on and work on the right issues at the right time, you're saving money, and you're doing things in a thoughtful, rational, scientific approach. And probably my best example of that is McDonald's efforts to create sustainable beef. There really weren't anybody out there protesting McDonald's, hey, we want sustainable beef. Most people even ask today, you know, what is sustainable beef? But we felt just strategically that beef is at the very core of McDonald's. Beef in general has problems with it perceptual-wise, whether that's with animal welfare, whether what's carbon footprint, global warming, and other issues with beef, that it was becoming less relevant to today's consumers. So we want beef to be more relevant, more attractive, and we thought the sustainability approach would do that. So on our own, we said, we're the ones that went to WWF. We went to World Wildlife Fund. We asked them, can we initiate a sustainable beef movement? So we initiated that, and it's, it's a long story, it's in the book, but very proud of the work that we did to kind of coalesce the, the, the whole beef movement, all the way from farmers and producers to uh, retailers and NGOs, and, and put them you know, in a, in a global roundtable for sustainable beef, create standards and measurements, and it's still you know, a work in progress. But uh, it was done with all the intentions of AIM. Uh, rather than sit back, wait to be attacked, and spend wasteful money on a poor solution, uh, AIM is meant for the proactive company. And if I would say if there's probably a couple main themes in my book, 
one we've touched, but talked about it already in, in my 30 years at McDonald's working on this stuff. One was collaboration that we've talked about already. But the other one was to be proactive and strategic. It, it still baffles me why companies, any company that doesn't have a strategy on this that's from the uh, C-suite, you know, I think is very foolish. And there's too many companies that don't have it today. Uh, yeah, probably most of the big companies have it now. Most big companies have officers on sustainability and they have some sort of team working on it. But that's that's the big company. Once you get past some of these big Fortune 500 companies, it's still tough going. And, and uh, so I'm a big advocate that sustainability for companies is not something to be afraid of. And I still think that is a, a thought many companies have. Yeah, it's messy. It's problematic. I don't know enough about it. Let's stay away from it. Let's kind of PR, PR our way out of it maybe a little bit. Whereas, in fact, they should look at it as, wow, this is an opportunity to connect with consumers, the new workers that are coming in that want to work for this. Just a way to save money. I can improve my brand. I got a whole section in the brand of how important this is for companies and their brand. And there's so many good reasons to work on this that make sense if you do it strategically and you don't let the outside world dictate the strategy for you. Yeah, and Bob, you... One of the other topics you say in the book or you talk about in the book is that everything is about change management. And and how did you and how did you and do you think about influencing others within the organization? And how did how did you develop those relationships, build that trust and and get people who had very different I mean, that goes back to the sort of huge, huge company, very different uh, agendas. How did you get them all, you know, on, on side on some of these issues? How did that work? It, in reflection about my time at McDonald's, it's probably my favorite thing to do. I mean, it's just, I really enjoyed taking on these tough issues. But then, then you got to work with the leaders of the company. Hey, a person in charge of sustainability, I, I, I can't make changes in supply chain. I can't make big changes in operations. I got to work with the leaders in those organizations. So uh, I don't know. I, I'd be interested in writing a book on this. There's so many books about trying to be influential and making change happen. All I can tell you is it starts out with uh, developing really good relationships. I was in it for the long haul. Uh, I learned early on from my first boss, who was a, a great guy and one of the top 10 leaders in McDonald's, Shelby. He's in my book. I I love the guy a lot. He gave me a long leash. He invested money in me. He let me travel the world and meet with people. He said, Bob, just go out there and meet and greet and get to know these people, develop relationships, because you want these people to know who you are. They want you to they you want them to know that they can trust you, know that you're a good person, you're gonna follow through on what they say, know that you know your stuff. And so uh, I always had that as my guiding light that uh, I'm going to develop relationships. I am going to be the most trustworthy person that can possibly be. Uh, so that when I go to the head of uh, restaurant operations and ask them to be the officer in charge of the planet pillar for McDonald's strategy for the future on the environment, that that person, in this case, Ken Colesville, he's in the book. Ken, you know, I know, I've known Ken for 15 years. He's a great guy. I know him really well. And it wasn't like I was asking the world of him. He knew where I was coming from. I know where he was coming from. 
And I don't know, it's just, it's a lot better to get people to agree to do things when you have a, uh, a runway that's already existed. And by the way, that's the same thing with NGOs. You know, I mentioned before that when we were getting attacked by Greenpeace, I went to Conservation International and the World Life, World Life Fund. I wasn't calling them out of the dark. I knew those organizations for the last decade, trusted them, knew them. I knew that John Buchanan from Conservation International, if he said something about what the truth was in the Amazon, I knew it was the truth. So to me, that's leadership. John Buchanan is a great leader because when he says something about that, I know it's the truth. Uh, Jim Cannon advised... Jim Cannon was the one that led us at McDonald's, and he was with Conservation International at the time, to get into sustainable fish. He was so good, so expert, that our suppliers for fish, who did not want him to attend the meeting to set up that strategy, they thought Conservation International was radical, Don't let's not invite them in, they'll cause trouble, they're breaking windows in our restaurants. Well, they had all these false notions of who they were. Ends up that it became big buddies with Jim Cannon, because Jim Cannon knows what he's talking about. And uh, they developed a lot of trust. So relationships, trust, uh, following through, being being a subject matter expert. So I guess that's the other thing. You have to know your stuff. And uh, and so when, when people would ask, I would always deliver whatever it was that needed to be delivered, whether it's the truth. Sometimes people didn't want to hear it. But you actually gain, gain credibility by telling them things that they don't want to hear. Like, here's the truth of the matter, uh, what's good or what's bad. Uh, anyway, that's a starting point. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very long uh, run thing. So it's you can't develop it kind of being hired by being hired today. <laughs> you know, so it is. I'm not sure if all organizations are like McDonald's where it's so uh, relationship driven, but certainly at McDonald's, that's the way it was. And since I was with the company long term, I, I was there for the long term. I would hire people that would get frustrated, you know, after a year and say, oh, they think they thought they're making little progress. They're taking steps backwards. It's so hard. I go, no, 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 no. Take a look over the last year. Look at how far we've come. We've taken three, four, five, six, seven steps forward. Yeah, in that time, we've taken a couple steps backwards, too. But uh, sustainability is for the long run. It's not for the short-term people. Uh, people that want to get into it should not be looking for overnight results because that's not the definition of what it is. To make something sustainable means you are getting the culture to change. You're getting people to think differently. And so the the bad thing about too many people in sustainability is that they lead with passion. They lead with what they think is the right thing to do. By the way, most times they're right about the right thing to do. But if you tell people what the right thing to do is, you're going to get people opposed to what you're doing. You have to get to the leaders and get them to want to be in the same place that you are at. And that is an art. And uh, whether I practiced the art well or not, I can, all I can tell you is that's what I tried to do. I did not try to push an agenda, obviously. I would try to, in my heart, I was pushing it. But in my actions, I would always go to people, say, you know, I'd, I'd ask them, I'd educate them. How can we solve this? I would come up with ideas. I would lead them along. I'd do all the things I could do to get them to want to do it. That's great. The other point I, in your book is you talk about uh, the convening power of McDonald's and, and how you were able, in particular in the Amazon, how you were able to very quickly build 
coalitions that went way beyond McDonald's. And could you talk a little bit about that experience and and what you learned from doing that? Because I think it you know the the saying you you know takes a village right. It's going to take everybody. And I and, and I think one of the the lights that shines really brightly in the book is is that you you had capital, political influence influence capital. You had money, and you used that to really commanding effect in bringing others with you along in the journey. So talk about that, if you would. Yeah, well, exactly that. Uh, we, we, uh, we ended up knowing that we did. I mean, we were a leader. In, we were a leader. We were a big company, big brand, 120. We we're in 100 different, 120, comp- uh, 120 countries. We uh, you know, had, had a big impact. And so in beef, even though we bought 2% of the beef in the world, 2%, we were one of the, probably the biggest buyer of beef. Anything that we bought, we were one of the biggest buyers. So if you're going to make a policy change on uh, packaging or beef or chicken or Happy Meals, it's going to reverberate beyond the boundaries of McDonald's. And that's what we learned from the EDF exercise that I began our conversation with. When we changed our packaging at McDonald's, we realized that almost all the industry was making the same changes. So that, that always became a strategy of ours is to uh, convene as much as we could. And by the way, we had success, but we had failure. Uh, you know, not all companies want to work together. I remember on animal welfare, we changed the size of the uh, cages to a bigger cage size for hens. And then Burger came, came out with something that was like one inch bigger. <laughs> and, you know, we had been trying to form a, uh, a coalition of fast food companies and animal welfare, and we failed. So I'm giving you an, an example where we, we just didn't feel because the competitive nature of us was just too, too inherent at that time to, to work on it. But I gave you the examples of, of beef, how we coalesced and uh, uh, how we work with our suppliers, how we work with Cargill and Greenpeace. It, sometimes we went alone, though. So I remember when we made the gestation uh, stall announcement for instead of sows, mother pigs, which are called sows, being confined to these pens and they can't move around. We said in the future, we're only going to work with uh, suppliers that had group housing for sows. Well, we had tried for 10 years on a voluntary basis to get suppliers to get out of gestation stalls, and they didn't. We made some progress, but basically it didn't. So in this case, we, we pulled the plug on the convening set and said, well, we just went out uh, uni, uni, unilaterally and said, you know, we've tried. It hasn't failed. The voluntary approach hasn't worked. So basically, we're kind of mandating this, that in order to be a supplier, this is the way it's going to be. That is not our favorite approach. I remember going through that. Oh, man, we don't like doing this. We don't like mandating because nobody likes being told what to do. So we had a blend. I think that made the convening power even more powerful because you know, people knew that at McDonald's, well, at the end of the day, you know, we, we had enough clout to even go change on our own. But that was never our first option. It was always to change together. Well, they need to know there's a shotgun behind the door, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, in, a, in, in, a, in the last couple of minutes here, the last five or so minutes, could you maybe talk about how you see how how things how you see things evolving? And now we look back post pandemic. Um, you know, McDonald's is a big employer in inner cities. It's um, it's got a, 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 an immigrant workforce. 
how do you see the the way that McDonald's business is evolving? Because it's still t- very front and center on um, on some issues, wages, things like that. How how do you think other organizations can learn from your journey and and what what foot do organizations need to put forward as they look at a new um, an evolving business and social contract? Well, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of lessons learned here. You know, one is uh, I certainly learned over the years that the priority for what sustainability means at this moment in time, it changed all the time. I mean, so I spent several years working on waste the majority of my time. Then I spent a lot of time, the majority of my time was on animal welfare. Then I spent the majority of my time for five, six years on nutrition. So you see what I mean there? It's like the job is never the same. And uh, in today's world, I bet you if I was at McDonald's, I'd be spending most of my time on social issues. Uh, exactly as you said, because social issues are so so important. And yeah, you know the list, and uh, whether it's wages and benefits and diversity and uh, all, all those issues, and the, the, the workforce has changed you know, dramatically in my lifetime. I mean, early in my lifetime at McDonald's, the average worker in our restaurants was 18, 19 years old, high school workers, college workers, right, working part-time. That was the model. When I left McDonald's, the average worker at McDonald's was 29 years old. Uh, that's a whole different workforce trying to make a living. So it's, it's a different mindset that's going to require different uh, thinking. And I think that's another lesson learned in terms of what probably needs to be done. It just This really needs to be embedded in the C-suite in a real way. Uh, you know, If I were to do an audit of companies today, that would be my first checkpoint. To see if they are very, see if they really have a meaningful, thoughtful approach on sustainability, I would be looking at their C-suite agenda. Uh, is it on the agenda on a regular basis? Are there people at high levels responsible for it? Is it being discussed? Just as other things in the business are being discussed, uh, I'm not saying it's the most important thing, but it should be right there all the time, being talked about. There should be a strategy. There should be measurements. There should be accountability. Those are the key things that are needed. And uh, if I don't see them, that, they're, that, that means they're missing and they need to get on the ball to get it done. And uh, once you get it in the C-suite and get a strategy, get started. Get measures in place. Get goals. Get accountability. And uh, that's the great starting point. Now, a lot of companies have done that at a big level. They've set goals, and we all read about all these great goals. So, with those companies, then it's all about making progress, which is a which is a whole different challenge. But I still think the majority of companies are, are still at this more fundamental level that they need to get the ball rolling more. All right, Bob, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a fantastic conversation on your inside McDonald's sustainability journey and and your 30 plus years at the company. And I'm really grateful for you to, uh, for coming on the pod or to you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy talking about these issues and uh, thanks so much. The Purposing Podcast is a production of Actual Agency. 
helping innovators communicate in a changing world. More at www.actual.agency.